0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, as always, Kerry Parker, and we've got another interview show for you this week. And next, it'll be another two-parter. And we appropriately have two guests. Uh, we'll have two folks in today from the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and we're going to be talking about student surveillance, something that you know is now kind of in all of our lives now that we are working and learning from home. Our instructors, our teachers, are schools, our employers are all wondering what we're actually doing at home. Since, since they can't, since they can't see us at our, in our desks, in our butts in seats, they, some of them, uh, don't trust us and they feel like they need to be watching us for us to be productive or in the state, in the case of students to not cheat. And so instead of shifting paradigms on how we work and learn remotely they are trying very hard to make the old paradigms work by enforcing some really Orwellian-type measures to keep tabs on us. Uh, and we're going to be using that word a lot because, unfortunately, uh, it's it's apropos. Uh, as I was looking for some interesting images to use on this, one of the ones I ran across was, you know, 1984 was not meant to be an instruction manual. And <laughs> so if you ever read 1984, I, I admit I I hadn't read it myself until much, much, much later in life, which is say uh, not that long ago, it's worth a read. I, then I tried to watch the movie and I, I, it, I don't know, I guess it's just a different kind of style and uh, maybe a little bit too artistic for my taste. but, uh, the book was definitely worth a read. It's, it's short. Uh, and unfortunately it's just, just kind of scary how close it is. I mean, Obviously it's not quite the same, but I mean, the, the weird thing for me is that if you, I'm sure, you know, the basics of the book, right? Big brother's watching you and, uh, and this massive surveillance state keeps everybody in line, but the way they do it is through these telescreens, which are like TVs that are in your house. So that means that there are actually like corners potentially of your room where they may not be able to see you. They might hear you, but they maybe can't see what you're doing, which is exploited in the book. And, you know, when you're out in the street and, you know, you're away from your telescreen and there might be others watching you, but it's not quite the same. But today we voluntarily purchase these telescreens and keep them with us at all times. <laughs> these are our smartphones uh, and computers as well. Um, our laptops all have cameras and microphones and we have set up the perfect surveillance systems and gladly use them every day. Anyway, we'll be talking about that today. And also, we'll go across one term, which I have defined before, but uh, just really quick. We talk about a honeypot website. Uh, And the idea of that is, you know, you catch more flies with honey than vinegar. Uh, And we, you know, sometimes as a cybersecurity technique, uh, the good guys will set up fake websites or fake computer servers that look like they contain nice, juicy information, you know, credit card numbers, passwords, users' personal information, etc., uh, or maybe you know, maybe corporate secrets, depending on what you know, what type of server we're talking about here. Uh, to try to get bad guys to find and attack them, so that they could catch the bad guys doing it and learn how the bad guys attack, so they could improve their defenses on their actual servers with the actual data. But it's a it's a trick, it's a sting operation basically. So anyway, you'll 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 have a, You hear a passing reference to that, and that's that's what they're talking about. All right, real quick, before we get to the interview, uh, this is, again, National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. uh, And this week, the topic is securing devices at home and work. Uh, And after the first part of this interview, I will have some tips for you from the National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST. So definitely stay tuned for that. You'll get that after the interview. But let's get into it. Let's talk with Jason Kelly and Lindsay Oliver from the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Lindsay Oliver is the project manager for EFF's activism team, and she works on self-help resources such as the Surveillance Self-Defense Guide, Security Education Companion, and Student Privacy in general. Welcome, Lindsay.
1: Hi. Glad to be here.
0: And Jason Kelly guides EFF's social media tactics and develops EFF's online digital advocacy and writes about various forms of governmental and private surveillance and tracking. Welcome, Jason. Hey there, Carrie. Nice to meet you. Thanks so much. Really glad to have you guys here. This is going to be a great topic, and uh, so... First of all, before we go there, though, EFF is just celebrating uh, 30 years of fighting the good fight. Uh, in fact, I just got my special EFF challenge coin uh, in the mail this week. I was very happy to get that. So uh, congratulations on 30 years. Thank you.
1: It's uh, it's fun to be at an organization that's younger than I am. <laughs> <laughs> 30
2: years is good for a nonprofit, but yeah, it's that's funny.
1: Looking <laughs> forward to another 30.
0: Absolutely. Uh, and unfortunately, I think we're going to need you guys for another 30, so I'm glad you're there. So we have attempted to return to school this fall, uh, but thanks to the pandemic, most instruction has become virtual. So, you know, this really should have caused a paradigm shift in our learning, but it, it seems that many schools and institutions just can't let go of the, you know, memorization regurgitation exam format. And so they've turned, you know, to draconian surveillance software and services in an attempt to proctor these remote closed book exams. And so I'd like to definitely have talked about that today. Um, First of all, how prevalent is this now? Is it happening often? Is it does it vary by region or whatever, or, or is it different between K through twelve versus uh, higher education?
2: That's a good question. Um, yeah, I, I appreciate that you called these draconian. That's definitely a good description. Uh, they're right now primarily being offered to higher education students, though there are a lot of uh, high school students that are you know getting getting involved as well. Unfortunately, being seeing these uh, apps grow at their own schools. Um, but yeah, we've got a few hard numbers from the proctoring app companies themselves about how many schools they work with and how many tests they administer. ProctorU, uh, one of the bigger ones, for example, says that they offer services to 1,000 institutions mm. in uh, 129 countries. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so they're all over. This isn't just, uh, you know, and this is, a lot of this. Uh, these numbers are, I think, primarily from before the mm. pandemic. So they they say they've administered over 200 sorry over 2 million exams a year. Wow! And then another source says that Proctorio and ProctorU combined; those are two of the big ones have administered about 4 million algorithmic tests in a year, something like that. So there, however many schools and students that is, obviously those numbers are huge. Yeah. Um, we can't we can't verify them because their partnerships can vary across you know, campuses and schools and districts and states, um, and then the private school ecosystem as well. And of course, a school might have a contract with ProctorU or, or something, but might not necessarily be using it for every test. Uh, but one thing we can
0: tell for sure is that the use of these apps is growing. Yeah, for sure. So for the benefit of the audience, how do these things like actually work? Like, what are they actually monitoring? And what are they what are they trying to do?
2: Sure, so uh, just to kind of break it down on a technical level, remote proctoring tends to refer to a category of technologies that monitor students as they take exams or tests. Their purpose, generally speaking, is pretty simple, to protect the integrity of the test results. But in practice, the mechanisms and the methods that they use to accomplish this are pretty invasive. And the data that's collected, uh, and in some cases shared and monetized via third parties, is really sensitive. Um, So just to go through like a detailed explanation, primarily the apps work by watching students' screens, uh, watching their webcams, watching their internet connection, and watching their app usage to identify behaviors that are supposedly consistent with cheating uh, or with identity fraud in the case of trying to get someone else to take the test for Mm -hmm. you. And then lastly, uh, with content theft, which I guess I don't know how big of a problem that is, but that's also one of the things that they claim they protect against. And they they do this using artificial intelligence or algorithms or whatever, machine learning. They all Mm -hmm. kind of refer to it differently, but it all ends up being kind of the same thing that they've supposedly trained to monitor students' actions during test taking. And so just to give you a list of kind of the items that they monitor, they claim to recognize through the AI whether there's anyone else in the room, if the student is looking in a direction other than the screen, If there's anything on the screen that shouldn't be there, like a text file mm. uh, with answers or something, if there are noises in the room that shouldn't be there, if the student is using an app that, you know, it shouldn't they shouldn't be using to present answers or get help. And they even claim some of them to monitor whether or not students are using their phones to Google answers. They, they do this by seeding the questions from exams to honeypot websites oh, wow. that they've built hoping that the students will land on the website and then they'll be able to somehow collect that that student got that data. I don't know if they are using that like they're, you know, they've written an answer and they're trying to Mm -hmm. determine if the student is using their answer or if they're tracking IPs. But uh, either way, it brings up a whole lot of complicated questions. And then Lindsay has a lot of information here to say about the data that they actually capture and retain. Mm.
1: Yeah. The data they capture and retain is... Mind-bogglingly comprehensive Hmm. and super gross. Um, I'm just going to read off like maybe half of them because the list is like two pages long. So it can include biometric data, including identifiers that in some cases uh, can be used to build biometric profiles of students. That can include keystroke patterns, which is the way that someone types, Hmm. uh, their fingerprints, hand and knuckle prints or patterns, voice prints, face scans, and those can be used in conjunction with government IDs uh, and facial recognition software, eye scans, and uh, behavioral pattern profiles of how someone moves or acts and like the way that basically their mannerisms, a whole lot of personal information, which is sort of the thing that you would expect from a surveillance company, just like social security numbers, contact information, government ID information, driver's license, passport, like... Identity documents in general and in in some of these uh, on some of these platforms. They actually do an ID scan Uh, like the the student has to hold up their ID to the camera and Then also some really sensitive information such as age race gender your citizenship status disability employment status. Oh my goodness. And a couple that I wasn't expecting. Like they have access in some cases to educational records from the learning institution provided to that testing really? uh, testing platform. Uh, along with video footage. And then the thing that I was really surprised at the depth and breadth of this information, device activity. So that can include the type of device that you're using, the operating system that you're using, your IP address, and in some cases, your exact geographical information, um, uh, along with a bunch of other system information and app in, and information like browser types, and who your internet service provider is, <sighs> along with browser activity data, oh my. including... Uh, the pages that are the referring and exit page URLs. If you are, you know, going around on websites while you're using the proctoring platform.
0: Oh my goodness. Wow. It's a lot. That's a, that's a whole lot. My daughter is at UNCW. And since we've set up this interview a few weeks back, uh, she called me kind of in a panic. She had a, she had a test and of course they're mostly virtual there. And uh, her Wi-Fi was getting flaky, uh, and and then they told her she had to basically take a vir- a virtual tour of her room, like hold the can- hold the laptop up, show everything that's in the room. To I guess basically to prove that there's no books out or other people in the room, and her her Ethernet cord wasn't long enough. I mean, so we we were you know going crazy trying to make that work. So obviously there there's people that can't even comply with that.
2: Yeah, a lot of the requirements of some of these apps do have limitations that some students couldn't wouldn't be able to comply for you know economic reasons, whether they just don't right. have a laptop with a webcam, or they don't have a good enough webcam, or they don't have good enough Wi-Fi. There's in California, I think something like a million students, and you know don't quote me on that, but it's been a minute since I looked at it, but it's some very large number of students don't have access to broadband at home, which
0: makes this very hard.
1: Absolutely, it's super gross.
0: Yeah. yeah, That's, that's certainly one word for it. Wow. That's super intrusive. And I, and I know as a software engineer, that the kind of things that that software would have to do in order to be able to do the things you're talking about is, is, I mean, it's really got to sink its teeth into your computer. How, how hard is it to remove these programs when you're, when you're done with them?
1: So some of the platforms, uh, I'm going to use honor lock as an example right now, Mm -hmm. um, use browser extensions that can be easily uninstalled for the most part. You just, you know, you download it from, say the Google Chrome App Store and you can uninstall it, you know, through your browser. But then there are others like Lockdown Browser. Uh, They are full applications that can require extensive device permissions. And we've heard from some students that they haven't been able to uninstall Lockdown Browser specifically from their devices. And had actually a friend of mine had this issue. I, I had to resort to wiping them, Uh, or in one case, I believe they they had to do a f- like a complete factory reset. Oh my goodness! And this is definitely something that we're going to be looking more into in the near future because that's you should have control over your own device.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm actually not surprised that's the case because knowing what they had to do, that you know. At least, if, I guess if it's a browser extension, you know, they ask for, for permission. Then you're right, you should just be able to remove it. You should be good to go after that. But yeah, if it's a full-fledged application, then they're, oh boy, yeah, that, that could be nasty. Um, so you mentioned a few of these companies, that, and I'm curious because I know that there's, since there's privacy issues here, uh, what else do these companies do? Uh, do they do more beyond this? Like, it's not uncommon, for example, for companies to have one storefront that does this, but in, out the back door, they're they're also monetizing your data in some other way.
1: Yeah, so I'm gonna I'm gonna list off sort of, sort of some of the main ones. The major proctoring platforms are ProctorU, Proctorio, Examity, Proctor ProctorTrack, <laughs> ExamSoft's Examplify, uh, which is right now being used for many of the U.S. state bar exams next week. Mm. Uh, Honorlock and the Respondus Suite. It's like six things. Yeah. Um, that includes lockdown browser and Respondus monitor. They all have a lot of functionality in common. And you know it's funny, we've been asked several times which one is the least bad, to which we've responded that they're all terrible, uh, but there are some that are more terrible than others.
0: Mm-hmm. Proctorio
1: and ExamSoft come to mind. But in terms of what else they do, Verificient, for example, that's the company behind ProctorTrack and their exam identity fee verification software, Veripass. They also offer remote employee monitoring and and management software called Remote Desk. Uh, They also have a recruitment and hiring software called Fresh Hire that administers like candidate skill assessments and video interviews. And, you know, there's a couple more like Verificient that have sort of branched out into other areas. But most of these companies, they do specifically focus on exam proctoring. But we are finding out about companies that are actually venturing into other educational monitoring outside of exams uh, or are partnering with student surveillance companies that do things that don't have to do with exams. Like maybe they're continuously monitoring students on like their social media or, you know, Mm -hmm. they're doing device monitoring while a student is doing their schoolwork or or scanning uh, or, you know, blocking specific traffic, things like that, like the, the full ecosystem. We're also seeing some indication that there are companies that have repurposed spyware, uh, also Mm. known as spouseware, that has previously been used by abusers to spy Mm. on their romantic partners. Uh, We're also seeing that those technologies are being repackaged for use in educational Mm. or even home contexts, like parents spying on their kids. So, nice. Saying all that, we don't have like a lot of specifics that we could really share right now, but we are getting information about them and you should definitely watch our blog because we're we're looking into that.
0: Yeah, I, I will not be surprised if there's going to be some pretty nasty revelations around that because it, it's just, they can't help themselves. He's going to collect all that data. You know, somebody says, well, we can make money on that data. And yeah, that that just makes it even scarier. So you mentioned that there was uh, AI involved with a lot of this stuff. Are there humans involved too? Are are there any of the proctors or maybe after the fact, do do humans go and review any of these videos at all?
2: Um, Yeah. Depending on the service level that you kind of pay for, some of the apps offer live proctoring, what they call live proctoring. So, So most of the apps offer two levels of service. The first is this AI proctoring that checks what's going on on the screen automatically and flags things. And then the second is, is the live proctoring. Usually that's a person from the proctoring company who sits in during the exam. And, but in both situations, AI is involved. So if the school pays for the Gold Star version, they get a live proctor who can look at the flags that the AI is finding. It records those flags and they can watch those and I- interrupt the test taker, essentially, to say, hey, don't do that or something like that. And they can look and see if the, you know, the flag is supposedly an, instant, an actual instance of cheating or just a false mm-hmm. positive. The the proctors, the live proctors are supposedly trained experts, but uh, I looked into some job listings for the different proctoring (laughs) companies and like for a a company called Examity, for instance, indicates that, you know, they're hiring part time remote workers. They offer a short training class and then you can become a proctor proctor. You some of the names for these companies we will get into this later, but the names they give things are so well, Orwellian or, Mm -hmm. you know silly in some cases their their proctors are called exam integrity and intervention specialists um and they they do require that they have some experience with phone or online customer service work but that's kind of the level of, um, of, of, of person that they tend to, I think, be looking for to do these. Uh, but then in either case, whether you're using the AI monitoring mixed with or combined with the live proctoring, the results then of the, of the flags and the videos and the screenshots and everything that the data, all the data that's collected ends up with the teacher. So in theory, uh, most of these proctoring companies get around the idea of you know, well, our our AI could be faulty by saying, well, the AI doesn't say if someone is cheating. The AI says, hey, teacher, you need to to look into this. And so at the end of the day, teachers are supposed to be able to look and see whether the flag was warranted or not. But in either case, the result is that the student is being policed by AI.
0: Right. So the... You know, the presumption that students will always cheat if you let them do it is not a new thing. I mean, I, even when I was a long time ago, when I was in school, there were definitely teachers that yeah, that kind of had that bent. But it certainly seems that, you know, the vir- purely virtual learning seems to have, have exacerbated this. And, you know, I mean, you know, doesn't the use of technology to prevent cheating and, you know, the presumed lack of integrity that goes with that just incentivize the creation of more creative ways to cheat and game the system? <laughs>
2: Yeah, that's a, a good question. I, we've we've definitely seen uh, evidence that people are falling victim to the idea that cheating is going to increase if it's easier to do so. Right. The only data I found in looking this up was that there was no significant difference in students' admissions of cheating in live face-to-face courses versus online courses. But, I mean, generally speaking, I think it's good to flip the narrative around. I think students and young people are really resourceful. This is a really difficult time. Yep. Everyone, everyone has had to become more resourceful during the pandemic. Um, you know, in the past, that might mean that students had had to take care of their families, go to an after-school job, play sports, and study their schoolwork j- just before a test starts because kids are busy, right? And for other students, that might mean that they're more anxious and they might be taking these tests and getting false positives just because oh, yeah. of you know the the amount of pressure that are put on them right now. And it, when it comes to the technology, you know, incentivizing cheating, I mean, personally, I remember looking at ways to download MP3s mm. when I was in high school by using proxy servers. It this is the late 90s just because I wanted to see if I could get around the Internet filtering software. Right. right? And I think that students are going to find ways to hack these systems, but that's because the systems are broken. Mm. And uh, students and young people are very good at pushing back against the systems that they recognize are BS, um, yeah. even if they're just doing it out of principle. So I think, you know, most people are going to agree that being watched by AI while you're in your own home is, is BS Right? and students, students are, uh, they, they need to be given a chance to succeed without being surveilled. And if they are surveilled, undoubtedly, some of them are going to push back. And if they do find ways to push back and beat the system, it's just further proof that these foolproof, supposedly foolproof <laughs> AI
0: systems don't work at all. Right on. Um, yeah, <laughs> it reminds me of when I was a kid, when I, you know, when we had photo day, when you elementary school or whatever, and they'd always issue you that little comb, and right on the comb it says "unbreakable," and that that was like <laughs> throwing the gauntlet down, right? <laughs> you know, that was that was a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> so, you you touch on this a little bit, but I mean. What are like the privacy policies that come with some of these things? Like, because in this case, it's it's the institutions that are the customer, not the students, right? So it's not that the students are reviewing this and say, mm, "Nah, I'm not going to do that." It's right, so they don't really have a choice. So I would assume that that probably means the privacy policies are not to their benefit.
2: Yeah, that's you've, you're definitely hitting the nail on the head there. I mean, uh, these are systems built for for schools, not for students. Um, so, I mean, it depends on the data that they're collecting, what what the privacy policies state that they that the data is how long it's stored for, and everything like that. Who has access to it? But just to give like a general rundown, the live feeds and the data are obviously stored for examination later. Um, so all those red flags that you know maybe the video from the beginning to the end of the session, the webcam video, the audio. All that stuff is stored. Um, for many of the companies, the retention periods, at least 180 days. Mm. Uh, much of that data that's is also supposedly kept until the contract with the institution ends, which could be who knows how yeah, long. Yeah, right. One one product, Respondus Monitor, the data is collected and retained for five years at a default, unless the educational Jeez. institution requests that it it's shortened. And then as far as who the privacy policies state the data can be accessed by, of course, it's obvious that a big chain of people at the proctoring organization have access to these videos or else they wouldn't be able to do the work that they're supposedly doing. But then there's a lot of squishy language around whether third parties have access to the data. Companies claim not to sell it to third parties, but... Usually, that means that they might still be sharing the data with third parties. That's that's a way that you know a lot of companies, Facebook, right. for example, say they don't <sighs> right. they don't sell it. any. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, right. So that that level of exposure to third parties opens up test takers to a lot of privacy and, and security risks. And just you know, when it comes to kind of the honesty of these companies in in terms of what they do, I, I think it's important to look at some of the language that they use which is often misleading and a little bit Orwellian to kind of describe the tech that they've built um, so for example proctorio says that they're they don't use facial recognition but they do use use facial recognition they use it to compare the picture of the exam takers to the picture on their ID uh, they just call it facial detection so they've they've they want to get away sure. with using some of these technologies and and words that you know aren't popular, so they just switch them with other words. Another really really upsetting, to me at least, use of language is that ProctorU calls their video recordings end to end. But that it normally, what you know if your listeners are familiar with with encryption, they know that if you say the phrase end to end they they're automatically going to finish that up with end to end encryption right. that's what we usually, but they don't mean that their videos are end to end encrypted what they mean is that they're stored from the, the 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 recording is the webcam and the screen for the whole testing session, so it's the beginning of the session to the end of the session <sighs> oh, that that's what end to end means to them, so that that's infuriating,
0: yeah. You know, of course. You know, the only, even with the best of intentions, the the only way to really secure data is just to never collect it in the first place, um, which a lot of these companies have yet to figure out. Um, but there's already been a breach, right? Proctor U, I think, had a big breach. What what information was was lost there?
1: Yes, they did indeed. Uh, that database leak it contained email addresses, full names, students' addresses, mm. their phone numbers, hashed passwords and the affiliated organization um, for all the students who were affected. Wow. But it wasn't only the breach that was really concerning. ProctorU did not immediately respond to requests from the writers who discovered the breach. Mm. They, (laughs) ProctorU and other proctoring companies will need to like seriously implement stronger security and better retention practices And they're going to need to learn to work closely with security researchers if they want anyone to trust them at all.
0: Yeah. So you guys are at this part. So what what legal rights do the the students have in these situations? I mean, I'm sure this has already come up. So, you know, can they can they effectively push back against this surveillance in any meaningful way? And for younger kids, what what about parents? Do the parents have any any say any way to push back legally against this sort of thing?
1: Mm-hmm. So um, I have to uh, I have to do a sad caveat here, which is to say I am not a lawyer, mm-hmm. and neither is Jason. <laughs> yes. <laughs> However, um, oh no, understood. Uh, yeah. So what what I will point to is um, it's a really good idea to become familiar, at least in passing, with a couple federal laws in the United States that do apply here but a lot is going to vary based on you know where you live and and the local laws there so like i'm in california if i was a student i might be able to use the california the new california consumer mm-hmm. privacy act yep. to maybe do some advocacy and and you know have a legal recourse that way but the federal ones are coppa the children's online privacy protection act and ferpa the family educational rights and privacy act mm-hmm. COPPA provides protections for the data of students under the age of 13, specifically around like, you know, websites that are marketing to children of right, that age yeah. or websites that may, you know, collect data of student on un- students under that age. FERPA on the other hand governs the access to educational information and records by like public entities such as potential employers, publicly funded uh, educational institutions and foreign governments. Uh, And a lot of these platforms are using a loophole in FERPA that I super don't like to be designated as school officials instead of third parties. Mm. Uh, So they don't have to get all of the permissions that you would normally have to get from students or their parents if they're a minor to collect, store or use this data. So I as I said I'm not a lawyer so I can't provide really meaningful advice on this from the legal side of things but the best that the best action that I've seen thus far in pushing back against this this creep of surveillance in schools is to do collective action and advocacy with folks who you know are associated with the school or learning institution that you go to um, that has, that I've seen a lot of a lot of students really uh, make some change that way.
0: Well, and I just saw an article from you guys uh, that uh, I've read again since we set this up that talked about several uh, petitions at, at universities from students pushing back against us, and some of them seem to be getting some traction. Do you know anything about any of those going on? Yeah.
2: Um... That's a, yeah, that's a really good question. I think, as Lindsay noted, petitions have actually been pretty successful. Um, of course, for every hundred petitions, there might be two that have an impact, but, mm-hmm. you know, when there are a thousand, maybe a hundred will have an impact. So we have seen students successfully petition to stop the apps from being made mandatory. And for example, uh, the, it was the University of London that petitioned against the use of Track. And uh, that university decided to move away from third-party proctoring and bring their proctoring in-house. So that was uh, that was clear evidence that this works. Um, another petition at the City University of New York was supported by the University Student Senate and other student body groups, and that convinced the school to mandate that faculty mm. and staff can't compel students to participate in online proctoring. So one of the things that seems successful or, or can can add to the success of Uh, these petitions and this collective action is if you can get student government involved. So you know, if you have elected bodies at a university, especially that are student run, and they take a stand against this, I do think that's that's going to have an impact as well as parents, you know, and like Lindsay said, others involved in the organization, if if teachers are against this, that that would obviously help a lot too.
0: Uh, now you guys have the, the the notion of the Electronic Frontier Alliance, uh, which is a lot of grassroots kind of things. This seems like a perfect opportunity for some uh, synergy between you guys and and students trying to push back against this.
2: Yeah, yeah, it, it definitely is. We use the, the the folks at the EFA, the Electronic Frontier Alliance that you mentioned, are really good at connecting on the local level with people or you know institutions that are being affected individually. In, in the areas with the where they are located um we actually tend to i think i think we're launching a campaign soon that's not necessarily about proctoring apps but is about covid tracking mm-hmm. apps and that's being partly run by the the folks who handle our uh grassroots alliances in the efa so yeah there's definitely a I hate to use the word synergy, but there is a synergy there, uh, and we're we're hopeful that as these local groups that fight back against surveillance in their own you know cities and states uh, get wind of this, I, I do think that students could probably reach out to them, and uh, also frankly just form their own groups. Yeah, you know a lot of our a lot of our EFA groups are student run; they're university based, right? Yeah. and this is a, a good opportunity for them to get involved and, and and form these groups actually and reach out to us so we can get them
0: involved with each other. Yeah, absolutely. So we talked a little bit about a CCPA in California. And because in the United States, we have yet to put together any sort of a federal level privacy law with any decent, yeah, any decent aspects to it. But the the EU, on the other hand, uh, has been leading the charge in a lot of this way with GDPR. Now, I don't know if you guys know, but I mean, I, I'm curious to know, how does GDPR handle this? Are, are they still doing this there too? Are they finding a way around that law, or is, it, or is this just not possible in the EU?
1: Yeah. So in in the EU, the the way that a lot of these proctoring um, companies seem to be getting around the GDPR, or you know, just handling this, mm-hmm. is um, they are being designated as a processor of the personal information mm-hmm. of the students, and then the licensing institution. So, like the university uh, is the controller of the personal information that's okay. then gathered and processed. So,
0: Right. And those are very specific, really, yeah. You know, t- terms of art with within GDPR,
1: and that, that's that's about as far as we've been able to like figure it out for them so far. As the GDPR is very complicated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: I I did see. Um, just I think it was in Amsterdam. There is a. Uh, a lawsuit that students have filed using the GDPR about the fact that they're not giving their explicit consent, but it hasn't gone anywhere yet. That's my only. That's that's the
0: only thing that we've seen so far as far as GDPR's usage. Yeah, And I mean this is still relatively new, I guess at least on a mass scale, and I, and, and things do take time to kind of work their way through this. <laughs> but yeah, so I'll be interested to see what they do there. Um, one of the other things I was as I was reading about these things, part of the sales pitch for some of these services that they give is, you know, it keeps everybody in a level playing field. Like we are we're we're monitoring everybody, but that makes sure that everyone's, you know, being held to the same strict rules. But as we kind of alluded to earlier, there's, I mean, there are definitely demographic biases in this either by income or, or race uh, or even physical or mental conditions. I mean, we, if people who are already stressed out about taking tests, I mean, this is just going to make it worse. And, it, you know, talk to us a little bit about what, what you've noticed with that so far
1: absolutely so this is this is my one of my biggest bones to pick these systems and these platforms absolutely reinforce systemic injustice at so many different intersections
0: all right that wraps up part 1 of our interview with Jason Kelly and Lizzie Oliver uh, on student surveillance and next week we're going to kind of talk about how these surveillance methods disadvantage many different types of students and uh, from all sorts of different backgrounds, either with different medical or mental situations or financial situations or just straight up technology issues. It really puts a lot of people in a bind. We'll talk about how schools are actually forcing students to install a lot of the surveillance technology, including location tracking apps on their phones. And we'll talk about how this actually compares to employers doing similar things with their employees. And I'll ask them, you know, are we gonna go back to normal after this, after this pandemic is over? And of course, as always, I'll ask what we should be doing and what we can be doing to fight back. So tune in next week for part two of that interview. I guarantee you don't want to miss that. All right, real quick, before we go, I said I have some tips of the week. And again, this is coming straight from the National Cybersecurity Awareness Month information, and it is good stuff. So uh, let me just read a little bit. They've got a flyer for this week, secure your devices at home and work. Uh, I'll read through their six tips and I'll throw in some of my own comments as as we do. Here we go. So number one, find out if your organization has rules or policies for telework and make sure that you comply. And obviously since we're talking about, uh, we're talking about work here, but keep in mind that we're also talking about students here as well. So as a student, obviously you need to make sure you understand whatever these policies are when you're taking these tests. They're probably, they're probably beating you over the head with them, but just, you know, make sure you understand that, you know, if you're If you're caught looking down or off to the side too many times, or it looks like maybe you're talking, or, you know, maybe you're in the background looking something up on on a web page, whether it involves your test or not, that might tip off some red flags. And same thing if you're an employee working from home and make sure you understand your employer's policies. And it is a little different. You know, it's quite likely that your employer issued you a laptop or issued you a computer, uh, maybe just for this COVID situation while you're home. And if you're using you know corporate equipment on on your home network, uh, or for personal uses while it's at home, uh, make sure you understand those policies really well. Uh, number two, protect your computer communications from eavesdropping. If you use Wi-Fi at home, and I imagine most people, most of you do, uh, make sure your network is set up securely. Specifically, look to see if it's using WPA2 or WPA3 security, and make sure your password is hard to guess. So, I think WPA is Web Protected Access. Or one, maybe it's Wi-Fi protected access. It's the security protocol uh, that encrypts your communications over the air because Wi-Fi is it's radio waves. Anybody close enough to you can sniff out those radio waves. Uh, no matter, it's not like it's a it's a point to point connection between your computer and your Wi-Fi router. They're they're being broadcast everywhere within you know. I think Wi-Fi can go you know sixty to hundred feet, and if it's not encrypted, anybody in that range could easily see everything you're doing. Now, today, a lot of our communications are over HTTPS, which means those individual connections between your web browser and whatever site you're going to, those things are connected. That's good. Uh, but there are still lots of communications, unfortunately, uh, on our computers, either web browsers or sometimes just applications in the background, you know, checking for updates or setting stuff to the cloud that still aren't properly encrypted. So you really want to encrypt everything. Uh, and the way you do that at home on Wi-Fi is you use an encrypted connection technology, which is today the the best ones are WPA2 and the most recent is WPA3. So if you've got a modern Wi-Fi router, you should have that option and you should definitely use it. But that's only as good as the password. So make sure you're not setting a very simple password for that encryption either. Make sure you set a good password. It doesn't have to be crazy. Uh, Again, someone's got to be within your Wi-Fi range in order to even attempt to attack it. It's not like they can do this from across the globe. So there's, there's a little bit of a physical access or physical proximity Aspect to any kind of hacking that would go on your Wi-Fi, but you know if you're in an apartment area or if you're in a dense suburban area, we—I mean—just go and look at your Wi-Fi right now and see how many different Wi-Fi uh, networks you could you could possibly connect to. When I do it here, I see dozen, at least a dozen or more. So uh, your neighbors could you know be accidentally snooping or snooping on your stuff as well. So make sure you put a good password, and it's not just your last name, or it's not something that's very easy to guess. Number three, if your organization has a VPN or a virtual private network, use that on your telework device for stronger protection. If not, consider using your own VPN. You can find numerous providers online. So I think this is really more applies to work. Um, I don't know that schools really need VPN. A lot of times if you're on campus, you're kind of, you're on their network anyway, either Wi-Fi or wired. Um, So it's already kind of a private network, just like when you're at work, you're on the corporate network and you don't use a VPN while at work. But when you're away from campus or away from work, a VPN can help you connect to that school or or business network as if you were there. And uh, as a bonus, encrypts that connection so that nobody along the way, your internet service provider or people in the coffee shop next to you or or any of the computers that that you must traverse to get to that network um, can see what you're doing and, and peer at those communications. So VPNs are good. If you work for a company, more than likely, they've, they've probably provided you with a VPN to use. Uh, but if not, uh, personally, I recommend there's there's there are several good ones. And there there's a lot of ones that are not good. But, uh, you know, you get what you pay for in a lot of cases, which means I certainly would not go for a free VPN. Um, uh, look at ExpressVPN or ProtonVPN or NordVPN, N-O-R-D. Uh, those, those are some really good ones. If you pick one of those three, you, uh, you will not go wrong. Okay, number four, if you're using your own computer or mobile device sometimes referred to as bring your own device. That is, in other words, something not issued to you by your, uh, your organization or your school. If you're using that for telework or remote learning, uh, make sure you've enabled basic security features. Simply enabling the password, PIN, fingerprint, or facial ID feature will prevent people from getting on your device should you walk away from it. Any PIN or password you use should be hard to guess. So this, basically, mobile devices, laptops, uh, smartphones, tablets, uh, make sure that there's a security mechanism on those. If it's from a corporation, they're probably requiring it. But if not, you should you should be doing it anyway. And again, make sure it's hard to guess. A lot of devices, I think at least Apple devices come with like you know, the default is a four number, a four digit pin, which honestly isn't that bad because you can set the device up to automatically lock if someone enters the wrong pin too many times. In fact, if you could set it up to automatically erase the device uh, if they enter it too many times, like I think it's ten. Um, so under many circumstances, four digits is not enough because that's only 10,000 possible combinations and computers can go through those quickly. But if you've got a limit in you know, a hard limited to a certain number of failures before it's locked out, that helps a lot. Nevertheless, um, six digit pin is, is, is better. Uh, passwords, even better, uh, fingerprint and face ID as it's gotten pretty good. As far as being secure, uh, it's certainly much more convenient than en- entering a pin. You'll need both. Um, I think by default, all devices require you at least have a pin backup. Um, and for example, if you want to add another fingerprint or add another face ID or something like that, you, you need a kind of a higher level password, but face ID and fingerprint ID is usually good enough for, for most of us. All right. Number five, keep your computers and mobile devices patched and updated. Most provide an option to check and install updates automatically. Enabling that option can be a good idea. If you don't want to check for updates as- periodically, uh, yeah, this is, this is huge. This is key. Every opportunity you get, either for applications or operating systems, make sure you have them set up to auto-update as much as possible. Sometimes they'll give you the granularity to decide whether or not you want to auto-update with just security patches, uh, you know, and other features and, you know, non-critical things you can choose to do on your own. That's fine. Make sure you at least tell it to automatically download and update security updates as soon as possible. The, The bad guys out there are really good about, you know, once they heard of these exploits uh, of quickly getting out there and trying to abuse them uh, because they know that a lot of people have automatic updates turned on. So be sure if any any chance you get on your mobile devices and your and your computers that you have that have them set up to auto update their softwares uh, wherever you can. And finally, number six, if you're seeing unusual or suspicious activity on any device you're using to telework or remote uh, remote learn, that could be your computer, mobile device, or even your home network ask for help better safe than sorry contact your organization's help desk or security operation centers to report the activity so again that that obviously applies more to people working from home but it can just as easily apply to somebody learning uh, on campus or trying to do uh, virtual learning if you're if something suspicious is going on you know contacting one of the sysadmins from your it department is a good idea. I'm sure they would much prefer that you call them and make sure it's not a problem than to say, eh, it's it's probably okay and keep going. These big networks, school networks, corporate networks are so vulnerable because there's so many links in the chain. Basically, every person, every device is a potential weakness. And and a lot of times bad guys just have to find one. Uh, So you don't want that to be you. All right. So that was from NIST. Good advice uh, for our Cybersecurity Awareness Month. I will have more for you next week after the part two of our interview with Jason Kelly and Lindsay Oliver. If you haven't subscribed, that now would be a good time to do that. So you make sure you don't miss part two. And while you're there, or even if you've already subscribed, uh, I would love to get a really nice review on iTunes. Uh, it really, really, really helps. So uh, if you have a chance, go give it some stars. If if you really want to take some time and write a short blurb, that's great. But uh, I'll I'll be very happy if you just throw five stars on there. We've got some more interviews in the hopper. Uh, we'll be talking with John Graham Cumming from Cloudflare. That will be the interview after this one. I'll definitely have to sneak a news show in between, though, because there's, there's plenty of stuff going on. And I've got lots of other interviews uh, in the works. And the 200th episode is coming up. Actually, it's not too far. It'll be right before New Year's. It's kind of a cool timing. And uh, I may have another really big get, a uh, big guest uh, for that episode. So you'll definitely want to tune that one in. All right, that's it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Come back next week for part two of this interview. And subscribe for a lot of great interviews and, uh, and tips, security tips and privacy tips, every week from yours truly. Get out there and vote if you haven't. Ever, the, I think early voting is probably open in most states at this point. Please get out there and vote. This is a crucial, crucial election. No matter who you want to vote for, we've all got to... We've all got to register our opinions and be active participants in the democ- in our democracy. You can go to vote.org, and there's a lot of great resources there, including where to find your polling places, how to register, whether or not you can vote early, how to get absentee ballots, all great information there. There are several other sites as well. I'm sure EFF, if you search for elections on the EFF.org site, they've got great resources there as well. But every vote absolutely counts. Uh, I mean, this last election was decided by very, very few votes at very key places. So everybody's vote matters. Please get out there and vote. All right, that'll do it. Everybody stay healthy. Stay inside as much as possible. Wear that mask when you go out. Flu season is coming up. Make sure you get your flu shot. You can get it for free at a lot of places like pharmacies and things like that. Just give them away. in A lot of cases this year, we've really got to be extra careful and we've got to try to try to stop the spread of this stuff and get past all of this COVID stuff, at least until a vaccine is widely available. Okay, that's enough preaching. Take care, everybody. Stay safe. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.